Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. This week, we're going to bring you a Grand Rounds talk from our conference. We had the pleasure of having Eileen Claudius in to discuss some pediatric topics in emergency medicine. Eileen is faculty out at LA County, a regular contributor to MRAP, and an absolutely amazing speaker. This talk is on pediatric shortness of breath and airway emergencies. All right, let's get to the Grand Rounds. I thought I would start with a talk on breathing problems in children, and we're going to sort of break it into two. Can you guys hear me in the back? Okay. No, louder. I can do louder. And we're going to kind of break it into two large categories of breathing problems, right? Because they're the kids that you're worried about, the kids that need some respiratory support, the kids you might have to intubate. And while more rare, those are arguably more important and more scary. So we're going to spend a while talking about those. And then there are the kids that you see every day in the emergency department, the bronchiolitics, the asthmatics, that while often not that sick and usually going home, are so ubiquitous, you need to know how to treat them comfortably, quickly, and get them out the door. And hopefully we'll cover both of these groups. So with the pediatric airway, I think the biggest problem with this is a problem that's been entirely created by basically me, like my people, pediatric emergency medicine doctors, pediatricians, because you guys are great at airways, right? That's what we do in emergency medicine. We are the masters of the airway for the hospital. And then it comes to a pediatric patient, and we've been told for so long that there are these things you have to do, these things you can't do, and these things to worry about, these differences from adults. And it becomes scary when it really doesn't have to be. And I kind of want to talk about some of those things that we've been told about the pediatric airway that make it intimidating and sort of debunk some of those myths so that you feel as comfortable intubating a one-year-old as you do intubating a 30-year-old. The first thing that I hear all the time whenever I go to a talk on pediatric airways is that the anatomy of the airway is so incredibly different in a child. And that's obviously crap. It's the same airway. The things that you have to know about, the heads are bigger, so you might have to put a little something under the shoulders to get everything in good alignment. What I often see is somebody will roll up an entire towel and stick it under there and then your baby's stuck like that. That's probably a little bit much. I usually just fold a blanket over, like one time and put that under the shoulders. Or if I have a medical student available, sometimes I'll just have them slip their hand under the shoulders. That's about the amount that you need. No, they're very convenient and sometimes they're faster than a blanket because they're right there when there's a sick kid. So that's about the amount you need. You don't need a whole big rolled up towel. Their tongues are big, you need to control the tongue, and their cords are kind of anterior, so you know sometimes you kind of puff the tube a little bit more. Really, there are a lot of other anatomical differences, but for us to know about when we are intubating a child, those are really the big relevant ones to us in the moment. The other big question that comes up is what to do about paralytics when you're intubating. And I know a lot of pediatricians are very attached to rocuronium. Billy obviously came to New York rather recently, but he is very attached to succinylcholine. And we've had a lot of debates on this topic. What is the appropriate paralytic for this patient? Well, there is a Cochrane review on this, and Billy's not crazy. I mean, he's not pulling this out of thin air. The Cochrane review very clearly says that succinylcholine is more likely to give you excellent intubating conditions than rocuronium. And I think that's why in adults, most of the time, we use sucks. That having been said, if you use what I would consider an appropriate dose of rocuronium, meaning one milligram per kilo or more, the intubating conditions are relatively equivalent. And when you break down the people in that Cochrane review and just look at children, in children, 
they're really equivalent no matter what dose you give. And there was actually a prospective study in kids showing that rock may give you better intubating conditions. If you kind of look at each of the drugs broken down, if you're giving succinylcholine in a dose of 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilo, it will paralyze your patient in about 30 to 60 seconds, and it'll last about 3 to 5 minutes. We talk a lot about the contraindications for SUCS, and there are many, obviously hyperkalemia, crush injuries, denervated states like a stroke with subsequent paralysis. Those are all big ones that we know about from our practice in adults. In kids, there is one more that I think scares a lot of people, and that's the potential for muscular dystrophy. Think of muscular dystrophy kids like stroke patients that are paralyzed everywhere. So if you give them SUCS, they are probably going to have a hyperkalemic arrest. It's a big deal. Muscular dystrophy happens in about 1 in 3,500 male births, and it's usually diagnosed between the age of 4 and 6. I will tell you, my practice is if I have a boy under the age of 5, I usually don't intubate them with SUCS because this does scare me a little bit. That having been said, I also haven't seen a patient with muscular dystrophy new diagnosis or known in probably about 10 years. So I think I would have been safe intubating all those patients with SUPS. It is something to think about. In reality, the vast, vast majority of pediatric emergency medicine physicians don't use SUPS, and this is why. That having been said, I think this is far overstated as a potential contraindication, and you're welcome to use it if you would like to with that one potential contraindication acknowledged. I just, I just want to make a point about, about SUCS. In, in my practice, I'm a pediatric emergency physician. It's not muscular dystrophy or hyperkalemia. It's malignant hyperthermia with undiagnosed muscle disease. And that's not just boys. It's probably kids under a year or under two who haven't quite declared themselves as having that. And the reason it's become such a prominent practice is everybody knows somebody who had a patient who had malignant hyperthermia. So in my mind, it's not the hyperkalemia, it's the malignant hyperthermia. I think that's fair. Um, and like I said, in the little ones, we do tend to use more rocuronium. Um, rocuronium, if you use it in a good dose. So the dose that's stated for rocuronium is 0.6 to 1.2 milligrams per kilo, which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard because at 3 in the morning, when you have this terrifyingly sick patient in front of you, you don't want to remember an awkward dose range like that. So I typically just remember 1 milligram per kilo of rocuronium. And if you give it at that dose, it will take about 30 to 60 seconds to work for the most part as well. The downside with rocuronium, obviously, is that it lasts a lot longer than sucks. In adults, it lasts almost an hour, and I clearly understand that that may not be advantageous to have your adults paralyzed for 55 minutes. In kids, it lasts a while, but not that long. It's probably about 30 minutes when given at that dose. And you know, sometimes that's actually helpful because sometimes you want to send them to the scanner or something like that. So it's not necessarily always a negative. There's a lot less contraindications for rocuronium. I think that depending on you know, who you're working with, you're attending, what you know about the patient, you do clearly have to make some wise decisions. But when it comes right down to it, for the vast majority of pediatric patients, I think you can use the agent that you have available to you and that you're most comfortable with. The next thing that comes up is I feel like sometimes we make this dichotomous decision, right? There's a kid who looks great and you know they're going to be fine on wall oxygen and then everyone else who's kind of decided needs an airway. But in truth, there is a lot of in-between in pediatrics. There's a lot of kids who probably don't need to be intubated, but they need a little more than wall oxygen. 
There's a lot of kids that are having a transient issue, like they were seizing and you gave them a bunch of benzos and you stopped the seizure, but now they're not breathing. But you know those benzos are going to wear off. There's a lot of those situations where the need for an absolutely definitive airway is somewhat questionable. And so I kind of wanted to go over some options in that situation. The first option I realize sounds silly, but when you see mostly adults, I don't think that we think of that valve mask as a reasonable long-term alternative to intubation. In adult, you bag valve mask them for five minutes, their stomachs fill up with air, they vomit, they aspirate, and they're admitted for an aspiration pneumonia for 20 days to the ICU. That doesn't really happen in kids. Kids tolerate bag valve mask ventilation very well. And if you're in a situation where you have caused a transient apnea with medications that will wear off, or perhaps you're in a situation where you're waiting for the ICU to come down or a transport team to come, and you know you need to ventilate this kid for 15, 20 minutes. This is a very feasible way to go. Difficult pediatric intubations are rare, but they happen. Difficult bad valve mask in pediatrics, almost unheard of, 0.02%. That's like one kid that you're gonna see in your entire life. There was a study done in Los Angeles, it's an older study now, it's from 2000, and it was done with our pre-hospital providers. And they looked at kids that were intubated in route versus bad valve masks and they found no difference. They found no difference in mortality, complications, subsequent time um, admitted to the hospital. So this is actually a very feasible way to go for the short term. The one caveat that I would warn you about is in the smaller ones, their stomachs do tend to fill up with air and you lose that ability of the diaphragm to excurse. I don't know if that's really a word. You lose your excursion of the diaphragm. And so, and that happens after about five minutes. So typically I would put an NG or an OG tube down if I'm gonna do this and suction out the stomach so I make sure that I'm getting as much in as possible. An option for the kid who is, let's say a bronchiolytic and they don't look great. You don't feel like you need to intubate them, but you've put them on wall oxygen and they're still breathing quickly. They're still really working. They're still maybe flirting with hypoxemia. There is another option that uses tools that we're comfortable with short of intubation, and that's high flow, nasal, high flow oxygen by nasal cannula. And the extra H's stand for humidified and heated. So if you're just doing regular wall oxygen, usually it's regular wall room, room air temperature, it's not humidified, and we tend to run that at about one to two liters per minute. However, they do make setups, and this is a picture of one commercially available setup that I have no stock in called Vapotherm, but there are other ways to do this as well. And basically, they run the oxygen through it so that it heats it up to body temperature and it humidifies it, and it makes it a little bit more tolerable to run in higher flow rates. So now we can run it at things like 8 or 10 liters. And this does a few things. We're not sure exactly what the mechanism is that makes this effective. There are a couple proposed mechanisms, and I'm guessing that it's probably all of these combined that make this work. The first is, when you take a breath in, and then you breathe out, and then you breathe in again, obviously before you're breathing in room air or oxygen, if you're on oxygen, you are re-breathing everything that was in your airways when you expired. That's not really a big deal for most adults, right? But for little kids, their tidal volumes are so small and you're trying to get oxygen into them, that that little bit of air that they're rebreathing, that's deoxygenated and full of carbon dioxide, actually can make a big difference. So this just kind of blows some of that air out and replaces it with oxygen. So every breath they take has more oxygenated air. That's one mechanism. It also is able to generate a fairly reasonable peak. And what that can do is it can stent open airways and open recruit 
alveoli that had been collapsed. And so that can help with their breathing as well. So those are the mechanisms. And if done appropriately, it's thought to be able to generate a PEEP of about eight. Now there are some ways that you can lose that pressure, right? So if you have a very small nasal cannula, like we would normally put in if we were just doing wall oxygen, a lot of that pressure can escape around the nasal cannula. So what you want to do is put kind of a well-fitting nasal cannula that takes up almost the entire nares. The other way that you can lose the pressure is through the mouth. And so one very high-tech way to keep yourself from doing that is this little device. Because most kids, if they have a pacifier in their mouth, they're not going to have their mouth open and they're not going to lose the pressure that way. Do you guys have pacifiers in the ED? Oh, we do. We have high-flow nasal cannula. Okay, perfect. So you guys are already using this for the most part. I think it's really preventing kids with bronchiolitis from getting intubated. Yeah. All right. Well, and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> Perfect. All right, so then you guys are comfortable with this already. Usually for infants started about eight, kids started about 10. If it's a very small infant, like maybe an ex-preemie, you can consider taking the weight in kilos plus one and use that number as a starting rate. So a four kilo child, you would start at a rate of five liters per minute. And typically they'll improve within about 90 minutes. And like you said, this is pretty comparable to CPAP. It's just using stuff that we're used to using. It uh, can reduce your intubations by about 20% in bronchiolytic kids, so I would agree. That's really the population that's been most studied and that it's most helpful in. In other kids with respiratory issues, it is helpful as well. It does decrease the intubation rate somewhat, just not quite as much as it is in bronchiolitis. And for transports, obviously, I think you have services in-house, but once you're done, um, if you need to transport a patient to a tertiary care center with a PICU, this has actually been used in a couple transport studies very effectively. They didn't have to stop and intubate anybody in route. It seemed to work quite well. Superglottic devices, I'm sure you guys are used to LMAs, um, and obviously know that they have a very high success rate in resuscitations. One thing I will bring up, because not every center, and I'm sure you do here, but not every center is going to have things like 2.5 ET tubes. And not everybody is going to be comfortable intubating a newly born infant. So if you're working somewhere in the community and some woman comes in and drops a 35-week baby who's having respiratory distress, you might be in a little bit of trouble even tracking down the stuff that you need to protect that kid's airway. So just know that if you have some small size LMAs available, you can use these in children as low as 34 weeks post-conceptual age and as small as 2 kilograms. So this is a good way to go in a newborn resuscitation. All right, next myth, you must use a Miller blade. So what I was always taught is that you absolutely, absolutely have to use a straight blade in pediatrics. If you don't use a straight blade and lift up the epiglottis, you will get a view like this, and you're not going to be able to see the cords well. And even if you do happen to get the intubation, hordes of pediatricians are going to come after you with weaponry, because that was the wrong way to do the intubation. We never, ever, ever used curved blades in the molecula in pediatric patients. And then an interesting study came out this year by, of all things, an anesthesiologist. And what they did is they basically took scheduled intubations for known surgical procedures, so not necessarily exactly our type of patient, but small kids. And they took a view with a straight blade lifting the epiglottis, a straight blade in the molecular, a curved blade lifting the epiglottis, and a curved blade in the molecular, and the guy took pictures. And then he passed it along to one of his colleagues and said, hey, how good on a 1 to 100 scale 
is the view that I got using this blade. It sounds from the study very much like he wanted to do all four views in every baby and the IRB shut him down and he was pissed off about it. Like you could feel the ire in his final article. That having been said, they shut him down to two views. So every baby got two views. So one blade, Volecula and Epiglottis, but then he randomized each baby to a different blade. So it wasn't four views in everyone, just to be clear. And when, the, when his friend looked at these views, they all looked pretty good. When they used the curved blade to, look the to lift the epiglottis, so the Macintosh lifting the epiglottis, which is not typically how we use it, it didn't look as good. But the other three, whether you used a straight blade lifting the epiglottis, a straight blade in the molecula, or a curved blade in the molecula like we do with adults, they were all really good views. And it seems to me that whatever you're more comfortable with in terms of blades, you should be able to effectively use. Even in kids, this was down to pretty, you know, infants and toddlers, so down to pretty small kids. And the time to intubation was about the same, 20 to 30 seconds. Video laryngoscopy, do you guys do a lot of video laryngoscopy here? Yeah, I mean, I certainly have friends who sort of say, you know, offhand, like, I don't know, like in 10 years, we're not even going to be doing DL anymore. This video stuff is so easy. How does that measure up in kids? Well, in brief, in a standard pediatric intubation, there really isn't any increased efficacy to using video laryngoscopy. And actually what they find is that the success rate in your run-of-the-mill pediatric intubation is pretty equivalent, DL versus video, and is actually a little bit faster with DL. So I wouldn't necessarily go to video as our default in kids. Now there are probably a number of reasons for this. We're not as used to doing it. The equipment is really sort of designed for adults and sort of jimmied up for kids. And so perhaps there will be a day where we get very used to this in kids and they make video equipment designed primarily for children that this isn't the case. But right now, it doesn't confer much of an advantage in your standard intubation. The time, though, that it's helpful is really the time that you want it to be helpful. When you look at kids who have a history of failed intubation, kids where you're looking at them and you're like, wow, that's a small jaw, and that kid has no neck. You know the anatomy does not portend a successful intubation. That's when video laryngoscopy really does have an advantage. And if you want to start with DL, that's great. We know if you have three or more tries with DL, those are the patients that really tend to go on to have complications. So if you try with DL once, it was someone who you anticipated might be a little difficult, that's definitely the time to switch to video. And the success rate in those patients actually is much, much higher. All right, what about atropine? This is a question that I've always gotten a lot of. Who needs atropine? Who needs atropine? And it certainly evolved during the time that I've been in practice. When I started, I feel like it was everyone needs atropine. And then more recently, we were teaching that kids who were between one and five were getting socks, and neonates that were getting intubated, and kids getting, and everyone getting a second dose of socks, all these people needed atropine. And this is what we were teaching. But it turns out that only about half of us were doing this. Were you doing this all the time? Um, under a year. Under a year. And I'm not sure that we really did. Yeah, but, and, and definitely not always one to five years, not that you're giving some. So we were all not doing this. We were not following the guidelines, at least half of the time. And somehow the AHA actually found out that we weren't following the guidelines and that nothing bad was happening to any of our patients. And in a shocking, unprecedented turn, they actually changed their guidelines to match what we were very, very successfully doing. So now there is really no clear recommendation on atropine. They basically say that you don't have to do atropine, that you can consider doing it in situations where you feel like there is a high risk of bradycardia. And there's a lot of different reasons for this. 
Now the first reason is that obviously a lot of these kids are tachycardic to start with. You're intubating a kid for a seizure, for example. They're tacking away at 180. You don't need to give that kid atropine. And so now we sort of have permission not to do that. But also the initial recommendations for atropine were based on some very good logic that just turned out not to be entirely correct. So the first thought was that atropine prevents bradycardia. And it turns out it doesn't always do that. About 4% of kids intubated without atropine get bradycardic, and about 4% of kids intubated with atropine get bradycardic. So there isn't a big difference. And when they do get bradycardic, the amount of difference in the decrease in heart rate is pretty small. What is this, like 18 points? Like it's not a huge difference in how much bradycardia they get. The second assertion was bradycardia is intrinsically bad. It's a horrible thing to be bradycardic. And the fact of the matter is, we know that's not true. We know that bradycardia can signify significant illness in a young child, absolutely. But we also know that we see 50 bradycardic people a day, we don't even bat an eye. This kid, if this guy comes into your emergency department with a heart rate of 50, is anybody complaining? No, no one is complaining. No one's worried. Everyone's very happy he's there, right? So it's not necessarily true that bradycardia is always such a terrible thing. And in a lot of kids, take that kid we're intubating for a seizure. Medication-induced or intubation-induced bradycardia is typically a very short-lived thing. Self-resolves in a minute or two, most of the time. Sometimes it doesn't, that's when it's scary, but most of the time it does. So if you're intubating a kid, they have a heart rate of 180, you tube them, you make them a little bradycardic, they're 100 for two minutes, there's really not a lot of problem there, right? And I always have the atropine in my pocket, I can give it if I need to. So who do we need to give atropine in? Well, the choice is really up to you now, which is great. But for me, there are occasionally patients that I think if one more thing happens to this guy, he's going to cope. The severe hypovolemic shock, the severe septic shock patients, those people that I'm like, you are like one point away, one milligram of mercury or one millimeter of mercury away from coding. Those people can't tolerate two minutes of bradycardia. And so in those cases, I am going to give the atropine. In a lot of the other cases, respiratory distress, seizure patients, those kids, I don't think there's a huge reason to do it unless they are already bradycardic. The other thing that changed is the atropine dose, at least the minimum. So the atropine dose generally is 0.02 milligrams per kilo, up to one milligram. But we used to say that you had to give a minimum dose of 0.1, and there was a case report quite some time ago of some kid who got less than that and got even more bradycardic, and it was thought that there was this reflex bradycardia. They've now lifted that ban, and you can just give a weight-based dose. You do not have to give a minimum dose if you decide to give it at all. When I was in training, people would stand there. I don't know if this happens to you guys, but like I'd be intubating, and they'd be like, don't worry, you have time, the SAT's 100%, the heart rate's good, and it was very, very reassuring to hear. And in most of my adult patients, it was probably true. But in my pediatric patients, it was a complete and total lie. It was probably the worst thing they could have told me because I'm like, oh, awesome, I have time. Oh, look, the cords, maybe I get a slightly better view. No. Pediatric patients have absolutely no reserve. If you have a child who is perfectly pre-oxygenated, let's say a scheduled surgery, you have yeah, maybe three to five minutes of apneic time. In an infant, you have best case scenario, 96 seconds, a minute and a half. 
And if we look at our patients, who are probably not starting at 100%, who are probably not perfectly pre-oxygenated, it's a lot less than that. So be careful. You really need to go quickly with these intubations. And obviously, you need to take the steps that are appropriate to give yourself at least the most that you can get, which is a minute and a half. So if you can pre-oxygenate them, that's fantastic. In addition, the apneic oxygenation, putting on the nasal cannula with high flow oxygen while you're doing the intubation, there is no literature in children whatsoever, but I certainly think they need it even more than an adult does, so I certainly do it in a pediatric patient. And the concept of delayed sequence intubation, where you have a child who, or where you have a patient that you really cannot oxygenate well, you give them maybe some low-dose ketamine and use non-invasive ventilation, whether it's an LMA or whether it's BiPAP, high-flow oxygen nasal cannula, one of those things to bring their SATs up before attempting an intubation. They actually have had four case reports of that done in pediatrics. They were all successful, and I definitely think that would be something to consider if you have a patient that you really cannot get the SATs up and you anticipate that it's going to be anything other than the quickest, easiest intubation. All right, we're going to move on to sort of some more common stuff, bronchiolitis, croup, that kind of thing. Does anybody have any questions on intubation or major airway maneuvers or cases that were difficult or anything before we move on? All right, so let's talk about something pretty boring, pretty common, bronchiolitis. We're just finishing our bronchiolitis season. Usually you guys are about a month and a half ahead of us, but I understand this year we've kind of all got it at the same time. Are you just on the tail end of RSV here? We're seeing another peak. Oh, great. We're seeing a second peak. Thanks. Thanks for wrecking my May. <laughs> so <laughs> bronchiolitis sucks, and it sucks for a number of different reasons, not the least of which is it lasts forever. So I find that unless we give really good discharge precautions with really good expectations to these parents, I tend to see these patients not once, but two or three times. The median time to recovery with bronchiolitis is 15 days. And there definitely are a fair number of kids that have symptoms for more than 21 days. So that would be the most important thing I would say about bronchiolitis. Let the families know that the kid is not going to be entirely better for two weeks. Obviously, if one week into it they spike a high fever and get worse, they need to come back. But they may still have some residual cough for about two weeks. The other big thing that was echoed in the more recent bronchiolitis guidelines is test as little as possible, as little as reasonable. And certainly for cohorting purposes, you may have to test patients that are getting admitted. And that completely makes sense to me. However, there are some issues with RSV testing. First of all, not every child with bronchiolitis has RSV, right? So only about 70% of patients that are admitted with obvious bronchiolitis to the point that they got admitted and maintained a diagnosis of bronchiolitis through their stay test positive for RSV. Well, some of those didn't test positive because they had metanumovirus or adenovirus or influenza virus. Certainly there are expanded panels, which are rather expensive to test for these other pathogens, but I don't know that it's that imperative that we know that they're there, that it's worth doing that on every single patient. So the RSV test alone is not gonna be that helpful. It's also not a perfect test. The sensitivity is about 90%. Now, there certainly are patients with RSV that are going to be missed even on an RSV test. And finally, a lot of these patients have co-infections. So I think one of the reasons that we like to test people for something is it makes us feel like, oh, we found it. We know you have RSV. Therefore, you don't have anything else. And the fact of the matter is when they do test for things like mycoplasma or pertussis, they not infrequently find them in patients who 
also have RSV. So you have not necessarily excluded everything else just because your patient tested positive for RSV. Same sort of thing applies to the chest x-ray. If you need to do it because you're worried there's a superimposed pneumonia for a good reason, that's totally fine. But just to do it to confirm that you have peribronchial cuffing and it's RSV, what happens is these kids have a lot of migratory atelectasis, right? They get a lot of mucus plugging, little area of collapse. Now you have a febrile baby getting admitted for respiratory distress and a little area that the radiologist wrote, probably atelectasis but cannot exclude infiltrate. Of course you're going to start antibiotics. So the more we chest x-ray these patients when they don't need it, the more we start unnecessary antibiotics. In terms of treatment, I got nothing. The recent bronchiolitis guidelines from the AAP said, don't give bronchodilators. Don't give things like racemic epinephrine. Don't give steroids. Don't give antibiotics, obviously. Um, and don't use hypertonic saline in the emergency department. If you are admitting a patient, you may be asked to give hypertonic saline if given to patients who stay in the hospital more than three days. It does seem to be helpful. But to give to somebody that you're then going to send home, it doesn't really help at all. So in terms of major treatments to ease their work of breathing, there's not a lot. One other thing I will mention, though, is they also said you don't have to do continuous pulse oximetry, which I think is helpful in some settings where you don't have a floor that can accommodate continuous pulse oximetry. So let's say you had a patient that you decided to admit because they were satting 88, you put them on oxygen, and they've been satting 95 for two hours. That patient could probably go up to a ward bed with spot pulse ox checks every couple of hours as long as you feel like they're pretty stable and you have them on a pretty, at a pretty solid oxygen level with your oxygen. One of the few things that has been proven to be helpful is actually saline nasal spray. I just put up a picture of one of the many, many over-the-counter brands. But if you do saline nasal spray, one nostril, then suction, then the other nostril, then suction, it actually has been shown to increase the pulse ox for up to an hour. So when I'm discharging patients, what I usually do is I tell them, you know, do this about six times a day. You don't want to do it every hour or you're going to cause some swelling in the nose. But at least do it before the kid is trying to eat and the kid's trying to nap. And maybe it'll buy you an hour or so of relief so that the child can get a few good meals in a day and maybe can get a nap or two and, and the parents can get a nap or two at the same time. IV fluids is something to be aware of the child possibly needing. They may come to you already dehydrated. They may come to you at high risk for dehydration. What's your breathing? 70 to 80 breaths per minute. It is very, very hard to eat and breathe at the same time, especially if the way you eat is sucking through a bottle or sucking through a boo. You can't do that and breathe that fast at the same time. So if you have a kid who's breathing that fast, they probably are going to be dehydrated at the time you're seeing them or are going to get dehydrated. So typically, those children, I would admit, and give them some IV fluids. And you need to start oxygen if the saturation falls to 90 or below. Anything above 90, you could potentially discharge home. Now, I'm not saying you have an initial pulse ox of 91% and you immediately write discharge instructions on that child. I will usually watch them. I'll feed them. If it's a very small baby, I'll let them sleep because that's when your sats are going to fall the lowest. But if they remain above 90 and they look okay, they don't look particularly distressed, that's certainly a patient that can go home. With one exception, the neonate. I'm very, very intimidated by neonates with bronchiolitis. And the reason is apnea. And it stands to reason that if you have a very gunky nose and all these secretions everywhere, that you could have an obstructive apnea, right? That you could snark on some of this mucus and kind of do one of those. 
things, and that absolutely happens. That's not really what I'm worried about. In little kids, when they have the same sort of prostaglandin surge centrally that would often cause a fever in an older child or an adult, they can, instead of getting febrile, or along with getting febrile, get acne instead. And so there is a central apnea associated with bronchiolitis that has nothing to do with the amount of your secretions. And it happens almost exclusively in neonates around the first month of life, maybe creeping up to three months on occasion. And these kids don't have to look that sick. They don't have to be tachypnic. They don't have to have retractions. It can happen very early in the course of bronchiolitis. And I have to say, one of the times that I do use a lot more testing is if I have a small infant, maybe two weeks old, they just have a little bit of a runny nose. They look like they have a cold, but I know we're in the middle of bronchiolitis season, or I know they have a sibling who seems to have bronchiolitis. Because that patient, if they have bronchiolitis at any stage, I personally admit for the risk of apnea. There was an emergency medicine study by Wilworth a couple years ago, and what they demonstrated was children who should be admitted for the risk of apnea with bronchiolitis are term infants up to a month of age, preterm infants up to 48 weeks post-conceptual age. So depending on when they were born, you correct them until two months after they should have been born, and kids who've already had an apnea at home, so have already declared themselves. Like I said, this is mostly going to be in the very, very young neonate. Happens in about 20% of the kids less than two weeks, and definitely most of the children are going to be within the first month of life that have these apnea. So who do I admit with bronchiolitis? Well, we just talked about the apnea population, the dehydrated or risk of dehydration population, the kids that are hypoxemic. Obviously, if they have poor follow-up, you need to be attuned to that. I don't know that you have to necessarily admit that. It depends how worried you were to start with. And then certainly risk factors come into play when I'm on the fence. If it's a kid that I'm like, you look fantastic, you could go home no matter what, they go home. But if I have a kid that I'm sort of like, oh, maybe we should admit, maybe they could go home, the SATs are maybe 91, 92, they're breathing maybe 65, then I start to think, do they have risk factors? Does this kid have heart disease? Does this kid have lung disease? Does the kid have neuromuscular disease? That's something that we tend not to talk about too much, but it does increase your risk. Is the kid exposed to tobacco smoke? Does the kid have follow-up? And in those cases, if they do have those sorts of risk factors, then I will fall on the side of observation or admission. Certainly, we mentioned that influenza can cause bronchiolitis. And we do treat kids with influenza under the age of two. They are considered a high-risk population. So I think if you're in the middle of flu season and you have somebody with bronchiolitis, it makes sense to test them for influenza. Um, interestingly, influenza also causes a very severe croup. So I tend to test my croup patients in influenza season or if they have a very, very severe croup as well um, for the exact same reason. So croup, it's the leading cause of strider in most little kids, six months to six years. It also lasts kind of a while, seven to 14 days, but I worry about that less because croup sort of follows a very predictable pattern, right? They get worse for the first three days, they kind of peak, and then they start getting better. And the problem that people have with croup is not that their kids have a URI. The problem that people have with croup is their kids sound terrible. They have that horrible barky cough that scares parents, and sometimes they're stridulous as well. And by and large, that starts to turn around after the third day or so, and it kind of turns into a more normal-sounding upper respiratory tract infection. Like I said, it's usually going to be peri-influenza virus, but I do consider influenza in the appropriate setting as well. Again, though, other than that, there's not a lot of testing to be done for this. If you get a chest x-ray, oh, this doesn't project very well, but you may see the steeple sign. 
where there's narrowing. Unfortunately, it's not that sensitive and it's really not very specific. If you take an x-ray of any child right at the time that they're about to let out a cry, which is pretty much every time they're in radiology, you're going to see that steeple sign. So you don't have to get radiographs just to see the steeple sign. If you happen to get a radiograph to rule out a foreign body or something like that, then you may see the steeple sign and that's from the group. In terms of treatment, this is kind of pulled into how severe and symptomatic they are. So mild croup, the kid that comes in with just the barky cough, or maybe they have a little bit of strider when they're crying or very agitated, that kid's going to get a dose of steroids and go home. And if you feel like it's very mild, you don't need to observe them. Steroids are going to take several hours to work. You can give them a dose of steroids and send them out, and we'll talk about dosing in just a second. The moderate croup, the kids that are satting okay, their mental status is okay, they have a little bit of respiratory distress, and the hallmark is really they have strider at rest. Even when they're quiet, you can hear the strider. Those kids typically get a dose of racemic epinephrine and a dose of steroids, and then you watch them for two to three hours, and if the steroids have kicked in, by the time the racemic epinephrine wears off, which is usually by about 90 to 120 minutes, then you can send them home. If the strider returns after the racemic epi is worn off, then you may want to give them a second dose. Some people will admit at that point, some people will give them two tries with the racemic epinephrine before they make an admission decision. And the severe kids, the ones that are hypoxemic, the ones that are <coughs> in severe respiratory distress, that have altered mental status, those are admitted typically to the PICU. About half of them get intubated. And of course, they're going to have steroids and racemic epi as much as they need to feel a little bit better. In terms of treatment for croup, we used to give a lot of cool mist. When I was in training, we would put these kids in tents and we would pump in this mist and literally like you could have kidnapped one of these patients and nobody would know until somebody rounded the next morning because they were in such a thick cloud of mist, you could not actually even see the child. It turns out it doesn't work. Um, it turns out that pretty much all the moisture that is going to help them, they're probably going to get on their way to the emergency department. So sometimes they like to play with the steam, that's totally fine, but it's not going to actually confer any treatment benefit to you. Steroids, on the other hand, do work. We tend to use by convention dexamethasone. It's also rather long-lasting, so it'll also often get them through that three-day hump. Dexamethasone, you can give IM, IV, PO, does not matter. I typically give it orally unless they just won't tolerate it. And the dose range is pretty wide. We have always been trained at 0.6 per kilo. They've actually tested down to 0.15 milligrams per kilo. They all seem to work. Give whatever you want, and I tend to max out at 8 milligrams. And then inhaled epinephrine. Racemic epinephrine is what we usually use. I do about, uh, it's 2.25 solution, 2.25% um, yeah, solution. I usually do about 0.25 for little kids and 0.5 for big kids. If you're ever in a situation where you don't have racemic epinephrine available to you, you can just nebulize regular epinephrine instead, and that should work as well. The, the truth of the matter is, we completely overdose people on steroids for almost every condition, right? I mean, if they've tested everything from 0.15 to 0.6 per kilo, and you get the same effect, it's pretty clear we're overdosing people. And is there any downside to overdosing people on dexamethasone when you give them one dose in the emergency department, they probably spit half of it in your face? No, I don't really think that there's a downside to that. It's a pretty benign medication. But I think we give really high doses of this to everybody. So one of the new things with asthma that's come out is using dexamethasone 
instead of prednisone for asthma. And there's a couple reasons behind this. The first reason is that prednisone tastes horrible. Horrible, horrible, and it does not matter how you give it. It doesn't matter if you crush up tablets. It doesn't matter if you give the liquid form of prednisone. It doesn't matter if you give prednisolone or Omnipred. Some of them might be a little bit better or a little bit worse. It tastes absolutely horrible. And we know that the compliance for steroids after a patient leaves the emergency department is low. It's probably about 50-50 if they're going to take their medicine. And I can't imagine that the bad taste doesn't go into that to some degree. So if you send a child home, for, the other thing with prednisone is a lot of people vomit it up, and it may be that they're making themselves vomit because of the bad taste, but that's another problem in the emergency department. You give them a dose of prednisone, they spit it back up, and you're like, oh, do I redose them? Do I have to start an IV? And so for those reasons, people have looked at using dexamethasone for asthma instead, and there have been a few good, shifts, been a few good studies showing that dexamethasone, because of its much longer half-life, 36 to 72 hours, you can actually do one or two doses of dexamethasone in lieu of a three to five day course of prednisone. And that's helpful because if we give that first dose in the emergency department, we know they've gotten that one dose, we know that that's gonna last for a while, and hopefully they'll take that second dose at home. But even if they don't, they've already gotten at least half the course and they'll probably be fine. Now, I think most of our dosing doesn't really come from some great love of pharmacokinetics that we all have. I think for the most part, it comes from somebody choosing a dose, doing a study on it, and everybody reads the study and they extrapolate the doses. We were talking about that earlier today with the bathroom um, and Talon's paper, right? Like, do we need to give this big dose? Well, this is what they used in the paper, so I'm fairly certain that this is going to be the dose that everybody uses, whether it's the appropriate dose or not. And that's kind of what's happened to us with steroids, and it's happened with asthma as well. So with dexamethasone, I typically will give 0.6 per kilo. There have been papers, I think there was a study by Shu a couple of years ago, that they used one per kilo. And these have maxed out at different points. So one of them maxed out at 10, one of them maxed out at 16. So depending on which study you happen to read, which study you happen to like, and what your personal feelings are on steroids, there is literature going all the way up to 16 milligrams as a max for um, dexamethasone and asthma. And the IV preparation orally is about 80% bioavailable. That's what we do. And so sometimes when I'm dosing it for fruit, people are like, well, can't we do the 0.15 per kilo? And I'm like, first of all, I don't care what you do really. But if I'm doing the IV preparation, I do usually go a little bit on the higher recommended side just because it's not totally bioavailable. But I agree with that. And I tell parents, I'm like, go to McDonald's, go through the drive-thru, order the apple slices. They come with a caramel packet. Don't eat the caramel packet. Crush up the tablets. Put them in the caramel packet and feed that to your kid because even dexamethasone, which is way better than prednisone, still crushing the tablets is the best way to go, but it's still hard. It's hard to get this stuff into these kids. Another asthma update that I thought was kind of interesting, I give a lot of magnesium for asthma if the child doesn't turn around with a couple nebulized treatments. And I usually give about 40 milligrams per kilo once and then I sort of see where they're going to go. This was an interesting study. It was actually published in a critical care journal, but it was done in an emergency department, they gave 50 milligrams per kilo of magnesium per hour for four hours. These kids got 200 milligrams of magnesium. Huge, huge dose. And they actually, they did keep most of them for a while in the hospital, but they ended up really increasing their ability to discharge these patients at 24 hours. So it significantly shortened their hospital stay. And I also think if you have a really sick patient who's not turning around, 
more than anything, the study said to me, well, if I feel like the magnesium might have helped a little bit, but they're still really, really sick, kind of flirting with intubation, I certainly could give a much, much higher dose of magnesium and have that be relatively safe and possibly effective as well. So I sort of like the study for that reason. And then when you think of the very, very sick asthmatic, I know one of the first shifts when I was moonlighting as a resident, it wasn't my patient. There were three doctors on, and it was the other patient. And then the other doctor, thank goodness, came over and helped them while I kind of cleaned up everybody else. Uh, it was a young, probably 20-year-old guy with asthma who ended up dying. And it was interesting to see them sort of run the algorithm of everything they could think of to do. And that is such a horrible, frustrating situation to be in, to have a young, relatively healthy person die of asthma in front of you. So just kind of some Hail Mary stuff to think about. Um, let the oxygen ride a little bit low. You don't have to get them up to perfect. You don't have to get them up to 98. Sometimes Heliox, it, does, it hasn't been effective in moderate to severe asthma on a population basis. But if you have somebody who's really, really sick, it may be feasible to try Heliox as long as they can tolerate the decrease in the oxygen that comes at the cost of adding helium to it. Non-invasive positive pressure ventilation might be helpful if you're trying to stave off intubation. It really depends. If you have an asthma patient who can't get the air out, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation isn't going to help. I certainly wouldn't put somebody on it that was completely altered. But if you have somebody who's just tiring, like they can do it, you know they can make it through, but they're just getting tired of breathing so hard, that might be a patient that BiPAP may be effective in. IV tributylene can be helpful if everything else fails and inhaled anesthesia, um, things like halothane uh, and that kind of thing, may actually be helpful in the really, really sick intubated asthmatic who's not getting better. So this might be one of the rare needs for an anesthesiology consult in the emergency department. The other thing that I think is important to recognize is there's a lot of different reasons for a sick asthmatic patient to die, but one of the big reasons is to have a lot of mucus plugging. So whatever we can do to mitigate that is helpful. If you can humidify the oxygen that they're breathing in, that's going to decrease the mucus plugging. If you need to intubate them, intubate them with the largest tube possible so that you can suction them as much as you possibly can. Because if you can prevent them dying, prevent them coding, that's obviously going to be a lot better than responding to it. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up this Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Visit us on Facebook and like us if you like the site. Visit our Google Plus page and follow us on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks and see you all next week.